This is Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 145 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm greatly pleased to host Michael Dolbeck, managing partner at Momenta Ventures, our newest member of the Momenta team. For more than 30 years, Michael has been an executive in institutional and corporate venture capital in Silicon Valley, most recently serving as executive managing director for GE Ventures. Mr. Dobeck began his investment career with Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers and continued with Greylock. He went on to venture capital leadership roles at IBM, 3Com, Orange and LG Electronics. Michael, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thanks, Ken. It's it's great to speak with you once again. <laughs> you know, this is an interesting one. Of course, we've had you on in the past, I believe, on a podcast and also on uh, at least uh, one webinar or, or two. But, you know, obviously, we just announced you're joining us as of June 1st. And so, you know, you and I at the time we're recording this are, are still pulling through all the LinkedIn congratulation notes that we've gotten in terms of having you you join us. As I've often joked if there was a celebrity list for industrial IoT investing, your name would would probably be in the number one slot. So we are very pleased to have you as part of as Momenta and really to to help take Momenta's you know investments to the to the next level. So let's let's start off with a question I always like to have since we call this the digital thread podcast. It's what would you consider to be your digital thread? In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define your own digital industry leadership journey. Thanks, Ken. <clears throat> when I yeah, that's a great question. Because I've been thinking about the uh, sort of common understanding of digital thread for a while, it's very interesting to have that turned back against you. I say it kind of boils up into a few large categories or maybe a origin story that will help you understand my journey. I since I was quite young and currently feel the same way, but Silicon Valley for me is the epicenter of innovation. And it became a place uh, that I was drawn to from an early age, believe it or not. And I can exaggerate to make a point, but it is basically the Athens or the Camelot of innovation. It sounds trite, but there are an extraordinary and manifold number of ways in which creative people are participating and evolving and trying to think of new ways uh, to do things and monetize them here. I spent, therefore, in hindsight now, uh, I've spent my career in innovation. You know, I, after getting a master's in artificial intelligence at Stanford, having a near miss with staying on to get a PhD, I've been at a R&D lab, four startups, and then I spent 30 years financing innovation via institutional VC and then corporate venture capital. So technically, as some people talk about their jobs, I joined Silicon Valley 44 years ago, uh, and I never looked back. I've seen 
the valley, the concept of Silicon Valley grow, and I've seen the innovation economy blossom and evolve in interesting ways. And I'd say the last part of my thread that's influenced me is my, I joke with my uh, former partners at GE Ventures that I, I got a postdoc in uh, digital industry and digital transformation uh, at General Electric. I, I spent the last nine years there. And I got firsthand exposure to the concept of digital rolling over uh, more traditional companies and traditional industries that interestingly represent about half of the global economy. And these aren't the digital first companies necessarily, but they're major industrial and healthcare organizations. I also, it's an interesting place to be in Silicon Valley because I got that postdoc together with my peers from other competitor companies that are also experiencing this their own digital transformation. So I'd say together, the postdoc happened, you know, the people in my postdoc cohort were from Siemens and ABB and Schneider, Honeywell, Bosch, Dell, so laundry list, I've left a lot of people out, Rockwell, Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, Cisco, you name it. So everybody is feeling their part of the elephant and trying to make sense of it and, and move things forward for the industry and their own company. Sorry, that's a long answer, but that's the way I think about it. It's it's actually a really great defining answer in the sense of at the epicenter of of, of in innovation really, and then you know more recently this digital industry phenomena, which of course GE was uh, really one of the earliest progenitors of. So what what a great story! I also could say I joined Silicon Valley 58 years ago, <laughs> but in a slightly different way in a Mountain View Hospital. So it's uh, certainly a great no, place no to be from in that regard. Yeah, oh, that's great. <laughs> Somebody yeah. told no, me you... recently that makes me a a unicorn, a Silicon Valley unicorn, because I was actually born there. <laughs> but the so you know, I think what's so fascinating about you is that you know, beyond everything you just laid out, but the 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 rich experience you base you have across uh, Kleiner Perkins, Greylock, you know, and of course on the corporate venture side, IBM, 3Com, Orange, LG, and of course, as you said, your postdoc at GE Ventures. You know, if you could boil down this 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 experience base into really three lessons learned, what would they be? No, I can't do that. Too hard. Next question, please. <laughs> How about two and a half? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, it, it again, great question. I don't think I have. I can't boil it down to just three. It it there's there's lots of lessons and a number of laws in air quotes that I, I think I keep in mind. I, I learned many of those in my uh, early career at Kleiner Perkins and Greylock. So I could share a few, but I, you know, I can't summarize them into the three I live by or something because it turns out I it's more complicated than that. Life is messy. Also, some are jokes. So they're kind of my personality is that I don't take anything too seriously. So I can lighten it up. Let's see. In no particular order, John Doerr taught me when I was a young associate KP that I remember this well. His phrase was, Mike, there are no rich pessimists. And what he meant by that is that at some point in venture capital, you get really good at finding the flaws in everyone's plans because you're trained to evaluate risk and you get good at finding it because, you know, life is messy and company building is, is difficult. So you can talk yourself out of any 
particular uh, investment. But at some point, you've got to flip and become an advocate and understand why a reasonable amount of risk is worth taking. <clears throat> and I think that's a early in my career, it's a transition that most early people uh, in venture capital hit. It's like they get really good at criticizing things. And you have to get over that, at least intellectually, to mature into a better investor. Let's see. In this long list I wrote in answers, a joke I'm very fond of is if you assemble enough people that wear Patagonia vests, a venture fund spontaneously forms around them, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, it's an inside joke. But but basically venture people, there's kind of a group think that can happen. And so the joke is that many of us think the same way and even dress the same way and, uh, you know, are, are fond of the same accoutrements. And uh, I think you have to fight against that because we all start thinking we understand how the world's going to work tomorrow. And that's really not entirely true. So I think I remember that joke just to remind myself that I shouldn't always think the way everybody else does. Think different, which I think is a French phrase, but people that prefer to think different. I guess a personal one is listen, which I'm violating right now, is listen more, talk less and listen more, but don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. I've found that's worked pretty well throughout my career. I'm really good at asking stupid questions of CEOs that are trying to build companies because I'm, I'm not afraid to say, I don't quite understand what you just said. I don't get it. And maybe it's me, probably is me, but maybe it's, uh, you know, there's something I missed here. On another tack, there's this list that KP is very fond of. They call Kleiner's Laws. Eugene Kleiner was the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins. And he's got a number of pithy ones, which I have to translate because they were sort of from the 70s. Um, but let's see. A funny one is venture capitalists will stop at nothing to copy success. What that often means is that uh, they'll there won't be just one company financed in a particular area that's considered promising, and there may be come too may be too many and become crowded. So just because it's a great area doesn't mean there needs to be a seventh company in the space. You know, there's there's a law that translates to raise money when you can and it's being offered, not when necessarily when you need it. Because there are times in the funding cycle where money is available and people approach you and want to invest in your company, but you may not be officially raising money. And if you wait until the time is right for you, sometimes that's very awkward. So those, those don't uh, always work. Let's see, another one, it's been said many different ways. Execution pays your salary, but innovation pays your pen. What I mean by that is execution is priceless. Uh, you can have a great idea, but unless somebody can figure out how to commercialize it and uh, make money from it, it doesn't matter that you'll eventually change the world. But you also have to keep an eye on the long term, which I think is important. I've got more. I could just keep rambling if you want, but you know, one, I, one, I have one ones. last one. Please. What's that? Please, go ahead. Uh, from the corporate venture side, this may sound, I don't know how it's going to sound, but of the several laws I have, I kind of learned that if there's a stupid option that your parent company will take, remember I'm putting myself in a corporate venture situation, your company will often default to that one. And I'm not saying that companies are stupid. What I am saying is that if you don't anticipate that they might do something 
in their own self-interest or at least suboptimal to what you think the perfect strategy is, you're going to be frustrated constantly. So if you prepare yourself and understand that companies have a very complicated fluid agenda, which doesn't always do what you think it ought to do, you won't be surprised and you'll be able to at least have patience and anticipate you know, how to help your, your investment navigate that world because it'll seem quite confusing and bureaucratic to them, but they have their own good reasons. You know, that last one really rings a, a note. And and I like your background because you've worked across traditional VC and corporate venture capital, of course, you know, bias heavily on the latter over the last 10 years. But, I, you know, in 96, I think you did, you, you owned three comms venture arm, you later founded Orange Ventures, the corporate venture arm of the European wireless carrier Orange, or Orange, in 2002. Orange, um, yeah. Yeah, but so... Give, give me a sense, what were the key drivers of corporate venture capital back then? And really, how has this model morphed over, you know, the, the last 10 years, particularly? Wow. Okay. I, I feel like the old guy being consulted about history. And I, it, what comes to mind is this comedy bit, which is a very obscure reference, but you might have to look it up on YouTube. There are two famous comedians, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks' kids is the guy who was uh, who wrote Blazing Saddles, for instance. He did a, there was a comedy routine in the 70s that uh, you can find on YouTube called The 2,000-Year-Old Man. <laughs> Carl Reiner interviews this old Jewish guy who's been around forever. And I can't quite do the accent right, but, you know, things happen. Like in, early in the interview, they ask him pretty much the same question you asked me. And, you know, Mel Brooks says, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I knew I knew the original writer for the Bible. He lived two caves away from me. And anyway, I'm not the world's expert on the history here, but I have been around. So this may sound like the two caves away version of this story. I would tell this this story this way. Once upon a time, venture capital was a niche industry helping entrepreneurs carefully grow with capital and precise advice. And corporations at that time, they tried to be like VCs, but mostly failed because the cultures are so different and it, it wasn't well understood how different that they were. Every day, corporations would often look at deals brought to them by VCs and be asked to pay a premium to invest in them or usually asked to acquire them. But that was kind of the dialogue. And then I'm skipping forward gradually, open innovation and disruptive innovation theory, it became more than a theory to almost every corporation. They internalized it and it they realized it became strategic for their survival, that if they didn't figure out how to tap into innovation outside their walls, that they were at great risk of being of becoming extinct, to, to put it bluntly. So to respond, corporate venture capital gradually and, and thoughtfully adapted to entrepreneurs and, and VCs. They were influenced by the financial gains, the growth strategy, the M&A optionality, and, and, and even from their own R&D labs, how to tap into what startups offered them, but not to kill them in the process. And they also, corporate venture capital began to develop its own professional requirements and its own best practices. Before that, it had been kind of ad hoc based on who you hired. 
And so I'm fa fast forwarding. Finally, today, I would say, and I'm overgeneralizing, uh, corporate venture has, it's, it's a recognized service-oriented profession. There are best practices. There's a, a kind of playbook that is applicable to where you are in the maturity curve. You know, if you're a brand new corporate venture activity, there's one set of plays. If you've been around for a couple of years, there's a different set of plays. And if you've survived the inevitable transitions that happen in a big company when they say the leadership transitions, then there's a different set of plays. And there's a f also a full palette of value creation possible via corporate venture capital that, that the parent corporation recognizes as one of the tools that ought to be or one of the clubs in your golf bag that you ought to have as a corporation to, you know, make sure that you don't get disrupted and maybe disrupt your own competitors and, and smaller companies. It's kind of the, oh, what's the phrase? Goliath's revenge is a title of a book that a friend of mine wrote. But it's basically if a big company figures out how not to get hoodwinked and, and uses some of the tools against its innovative competitors, it, it, it can turn the tables around. You know, thinking about GE Digital, so you joined GE Digital in, in 2012, I guess driving at the time, digital strategy, venture investments, M&A, in, in what at least the industry was thinking of the very nascent industrial internet of things. What what attracted you to the company and, and role at the time? And perhaps, you know, given your last question, you know, how did you apply your, you know, your corporate venture capital expertise into GE? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a, a tie together my point of view. So the reason that I was attracted, and I think Silicon Valley people will get this, is that it was the most, the, the, the ambition of GE Digital to become more digital first company with respect to itself and its interaction with its customers, to dream up new services that were based on the data that was coming from its machines that it was creating as opposed to just making big hot spinning things and selling them to asset operators that that transition that they were proposing was the most ambitious audacious challenging goal that i had seen in quite some time it was a kind of change the literally a change the world mission i thought very difficult very risky a lot of people didn't think it could be done and like a moth to a flame again, that that attracts me, and it, as it does many uh, of the personalities in venture capital, or sorry, in Silicon Valley. What to tie it back to my previous answer? What I also saw was that at the time they were going to try and do everything themselves, hire an army of software people, and you know fraught with make the risk even higher because they weren't going to tap into all of the innovation that uh, was happening outside of their walls and so i literally i guess convinced them that we could reduce risk and decrease time to market and maybe create some optionality some hedging against risk by standing on the shoulders of the people that were driving the innovation in big data and AI, machine learning, and then uh, IoT and cybersecurity, to, to name just a few. At the time, I 
didn't quite understand the plans for edge computing, but that also soon became tied into all the other categories that I just mentioned. So standing on the shoulders of people who were evolving that concept also became very important. I I, I at least attribute to the fact that you coined the uh, term venture industrialist at the time, a a term, of course, you know, Momenta has adopted a bit as its own as well. What, What does the term mean to you? Yeah, I'm not sure I coined it, but I'll take credit for it if you want to tell a lot of people I did. That's fine. I've been pretty consistent about that. Oh, so. yeah, that's right. You have. <laughs> that's the Mike Dolbeck uh, term. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, I can't remember if I coined a lot of terms, so I might have. I'm not sure, but let's go with that. Okay, to, to boil it down, venture industrialist to me means venture capital adapted to the fourth industrial revolution and, and the transformation that I think we're all living through, whether we realize it or not. The people who run industrial corporations are certainly living through it, but the people who consume services and products and and, and such from those companies are also living through it, although they may not entirely see the effects firsthand. Venture industrialists, the, this concept that requires, it's also a modified playbook in the terms that venture capitalists sort of have a playbook that they, they use. It's more in tune with the opportunities and challenges of the industrial, and I'd also include healthcare digital transformation, because the traditional venture playbook that uh, you learn as you apprentice in venture capital comes from how the enterprise world has uh, adopted and embraces innovation and, and software and business models and user interface and user experience. That is mostly applicable, but sometimes the wrong play and you get yourself in trouble. So you have to know when to go off the the playbook that you learned if you apprenticed in traditional venture capital and, and know when you need a new play. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, if you're a NFL football team that plays every game in a, in a nice stadium in pleasant, climate and all of a sudden you've got to play the Green Bay Packers during a snowstorm and the, you can't even see the field or the, you know, the, the they can't see the pitch for your European viewers uh, and you can't see the uh, goal line or any of the lines on the field. Maybe you need different plays. The ball is slippery, you know, it's uh, very terrible conditions and you just need to adapt to a new situation in order to play roughly the same game, but by different rules to get there. Given the response on one of my earlier questions around boiling things down into the top three, I'm going to try this again in a different way. So <laughs> 30 years of investing, you know, oh, yeah. what what, mm-hmm. what what are your three favorite companies? It's like asking, you know, which, which child is your favorite child, right? <laughs> yeah. But which which ones were your all, favorites so- and, and why? Yep. <laughs> yeah. I never answer. I get asked this question a lot and I'm sorry, I'm going to continue to not answer it. One thing I learned in media training is that you can also say, you know, that's not the right question. The right question is this one. I can tell you economically, if you wanted to know what my most financially successful investment was, it was Juniper Networks, which is many people's gigantic financial success. And there's a story behind that. I'm not particularly smarter than anybody else, but I I leveraged the the uh, position I had at the time into uh, the relationships I had at the time into the small early position that we had at Juniper and had like a double digit multiple of our investment. It's a high, wow. I forget, 
98x or something spectacular. So in terms of actually answering your question, I love all of my children and I don't have favorites. If you've ever listened to national public radio, there used to be a spot where the radio personality would talk about this imaginary place called Lake Wobegon, where all the children are beautiful and all the children are above average and, yep. you know, joking. So I think about my that way. Yeah. Garris, yeah. He's, I think he retired now. So I don't even, I, yeah, yeah. we both talked about this. We, I don't get a chance to listen to public radio much anymore, but back in the day, I, I guess I think about the categories of innovation that my investments slot into and which ones are most successful right now without calling out particular names. I'd say edge computing is an idea whose time has come and is off to the races. So they're really exciting developments happening across that space. The, across the entire stack and and even at the either the top of the stack or you could say a full stack solution where entire solutions for business problems which happen to work best in a edge computing environment are being more than validated by the the market they're being sought after and you know competitively sourced and purchased so that's that warms my heart i think i told you this story once but the group of edge computing investments I put together when I was at GE Ventures pulled that trick on me once that we had a dinner, a private dinner at Hanover during the Hanover Messy Fair. And they, as we ran around the room, everybody introduced themselves because they hadn't quite all met each other. One guy jokingly said, hi, I'm so-and-so from, you know, I'm the CEO of this company and I'm a member of the Mike Dolbeck, evil, evil empire of edge computing. And, you know, and the next guy caught on and you know, after about six guys saying they were members of the evil empire of edge computing, I just cracked up. So later I made them all t-shirts and I think I showed you one of the t-shirts. So there's kind of a club of early edge computing guys that, and, you know, responsible there. So that's one category, edge computing to skip forward, machine intelligence broadly defined, that's, you know, the use of AI to to do something valuable, essentially make predictions that, and then do something about that prediction based on data that's coming from industrial equipment or industrial process or some industrial situation like logistics or supply chain, where an executive or group of executives has to make a decision based on all the information they have available, but they don't have infinite time to decide what to do. And I think there's been great progress there the evolution of IoT in, in, in many ways is taking off in different markets at different times. I mean, I'm not, these categories aren't always distinct because they, they, the Venn diagrams overlap, but I, I think I'm, I'm very um, pleased with how that's evolving. And then there's a whole other great story about what I call data infrastructure, but it's the plumbing of associated with acquiring industrial data, storing it, contextualizing it, <clears throat> cleaning it up, because in the real world, it's quite messy, much more messy than say the streams of click streams that Google and Facebook have to deal with. In, there's an enormous amounts of it. So just storing it or bulldozing it around so you have it in useful places when you need it is uh, that whole uh, area of innovation is, is quite active. And so those, Investments I have in those categories are, are are doing quite well. It's they're not all doing quite well at the same time. It tends to 
I don't know. It's like having a big orchard and, you know, one side of the orchard starts to bloom and the, you know, the other or a vineyard maybe. And your grapes on one side, you know, for some reason take off because the soil and sun is just right. And then your other ones, you know, have to wait until later in the year before they take off and become right. That's kind of what it feels like. So we have a big vineyard, but things are doing pretty well in, in certain acres. So perhaps I can think about this as the moth to a flame question. So I'm, I'm sure many are asking, listeners are asking, you know, why, why Momenta? Okay, why Momenta? I guess it is, we've known each other for how long, Ken? Eight years? <laughs> It's yes, it's been almost a decade, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've had a long time to get to know each other and wrestle with how we see issues and companies and markets and ecosystems and you know what's going to happen next and why this will or will not happen next. And I, I feel a great deal of simpatico with you and the way you think about things and the organization that you've built and the way that they're, I think, great example of what the modern venture activity needs to be. And it's it's focused on ecosystem investing. At least it has that in mind when it makes an investment in a particular company. It has value creation in mind and the muscle to bring that about. You know, the, the search capability, the strategy, the advisory is not insignificant. And it, you know, I just think the same way about what everybody's got money. And, and they're, so if the startup is just interested in capital, I don't have much differentiation there. But what I do have, and I this is, again, why I resonate with Momenta, what Momenta has, what we have at Momenta is kind of the big picture and how they fit into it and the ability to help a smaller company get noticed and form a relationship that'll be productive and mean something to them and generate revenue sooner than they might figure it out themselves. I used to say to startups, if what's it worth to avoid having to pivot because you misguessed the market or requirements and you had to back up and you know re basically restart everything you've done. If I can help you avoid that, and I think together with Momenta we have you know an awesome ability to help companies get purchase and avoid that uh, and f get started on the right foot and keep going. So that's why. Perfect. Well, uh, we are very pleased to have you. And I, as you can, well, the, the complementary aspect of this is is quite obvious in, in terms of what the value you bring in Momenta hopefully brings to your capabilities. So just maybe a more personal question I always like to close on. Where do you find your your personal inspiration, if you will? Yeah. Hmm. Good question. Well, remember back, I explained that personally, I think I live in the Athens and Camelot of innovation, right? <laughs> you know, bear with me here. But for me, inspirations everywhere I live, it's everywhere all the time. I find inspiration in people, which is one of the great aspects about venture capital is you get to meet lots of smart people that are doing interesting things. So people, books, and online. I'm the kind of guy, I never met a new idea that I didn't like. And I constantly have to fight myself against going down some rat hole, learning about obscure things that are interesting to me. I think my mother was 
I used to joke and say she has the trivia gene. She used to know the obscure answer to crazy stuff. And I, for some reason, I think I have that same genetic trait. I'm a lot of fun at trivia night at the local pub. So uh, I, I just love engaging with smart people. You know, I engage with authors, creators, thinkers, researchers. I look back at the, I just looked at my Kindle reading list. And without telling you which actual books I'm reading, here are the topics of the most recent books I've been reading. The history of the scientific method, like why did it take so long to get to this, this knowledge machine that we now have for creating, you know, why didn't it happen back in the original Athens? Why did it only happen, say, 200 years ago? The next topic was managing virtual teams, very relevant here in this situation momenta is basically a remote remote first company asteroid mining okay that's a big segue from virtual teams <laughs> I like uh, that. The, the legal issues the future the near-term future issues legal issues with ai persons you know if if i won't go into it but you know if if an ai was a legal person how much culpability and responsibility and liability and whatever might they have for certain decisions. The transformation transformation of mobility, which is kind of a big topic these days, as you know. The history of the electric grid. As a Californian, you know, we're looking forward to, you know, lots of <laughs> creative news about which part of the state won't have power for a couple of days. So I have to change my outdoor dining plans. The history of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. I've known a lot of people who've worked there. And it's a very interesting entity that I understand now several European countries are trying to duplicate in some way to get some of the benefits. It'll be challenging and interesting to see if they pull that off. And then many different books that dive into how to, it, basically corporate innovation, but how to best tap into external innovations and help companies incorporate them and make good use of them. So those are you know, just that's kind of a random walk through Dolbeck's reading list, but there's a lot of science <laughs> light, fiction. Light it. reading <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much heavier you can get unless you just go for scientific published papers. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. A favorite. I have favorites there too, but usually I'm they have sure, I'm sure you do. I think there's another whole podcast episode that we should dedicate to that. So, <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thanks, Ken. Obviously, I'm very excited to, you know, to come on board. And I'm really looking forward to working with you and the rest of the team and the portfolio and, and somehow leveraging the postdoc that I that I have in digital transformation. So tally ho, let's go. Amen, brother. So this has been Michael Dolbeck, managing partner of Momenta and Venture Industrialist, because now we can actually claim the term since we have the the, the person who coined it. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for our next episode of the Momenta Digital Thread Podcast. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread Podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.